as we read from Deuteronomy 22 and then in Deuteronomy 24. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him and you shall do the same with his donkey or his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You shall not pervert the justice to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Lord, again, we um, bow before your word. We we rest in the reality that you are a God who speaks to us and that in your word is life. And so we ask that you would give us life, that you would help us to hear what you have to say, that you would draw us to Jesus, help us to realize his love for us even as we consider these things and that you would make us more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of Jesus' most famous stories was told in response to an interruption. There is this moment midway through Jesus' ministry where the disciples have gone out for the first time on mission. They've gone out throughout the entire country to talk about Jesus. They come back, and they're having this debrief session, and there's excitement, there's joy. But for some reason, and we're not told why, suddenly a religious leader just kind of like almost taps Jesus on the shoulder and decides to break into this and ask him a question. It says he came to test Jesus, and he asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Like, what is the way, the way of God, the way that God commands that is the way that involves life? And they have a back and forth, and, and this, this religious leader acknowledges that kind of the, the heart of it's clear. You're supposed to love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. But then he follows up with a subsequent question where he says, so who is my neighbor? 
Which on one hand seems like a logical question to ask, but if you think about it, it is showing kind of a, a limiting mindset. He's essentially asking, how can I know when I have fulfilled my duty so that I don't have to love anymore? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who don't I have to love? So in response to this question, Jesus, as he oftentimes does, tells a story. One of the most famous stories that he's told. He talks about this man who's walking from Jerusalem on a road to Jericho, and he's overtaken by robbers, and the robbers beat him. They take his clothing. They, they bring him down to like an inch of his life. He's just lying there, bruised and battered. And, and a little bit later, a priest comes and, and sees this person and immediately he walks to the other side of the road and kind of like keeps not looking at him and just kind of walks past. A little while later, a Levite does exactly the same thing, looking, turning his head, walking to the other side and going. Then finally, we have a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan is almost by no normal definition a neighbor to this person. A Samaritan is from another part of the country. And what's more, he is part of a group of people that were very much not friendly with the Jews. And yet we're told that when he is walking, he looks and he sees. And it says he has compassion. The idea is his heart is melted. He recognizes someone who is like him, who is a human being. He recognizes his suffering. And so he goes to the person on the side of the road. He, he deals with his wounds. He puts him on a donkey and he brings him to an inn so that he might be healed. So after Jesus tells the story, he asks a very simple question. Who do you think was the neighbor to the person who was on the street? And that question actually is at the very heart of understanding what the story is about. Do you notice that Jesus does something different? He turns the question upside down. He's not asking, who do you have to love? That's not the question. He's not endorsing a limit mindset. Instead, he's saying, how can you be a neighbor to someone else? That's the real question. He's talking not about a mindset of limits, but a mindset of mercy. Jesus is saying, in our lives, we inevitably, as we are walking down the path of our life, we will encounter people with real need. And we will be tempted at times to hide ourselves from it, to turn our eyes away and not to see. But our calling instead is to look. And when we have the ability to bring help to a person in need, that is our calling. That is how we can be a neighbor. It is the way of mercy. This actually is a, a repeated theme of Jesus. And Jesus sees this at the very heart. If you want to understand God's instructions in the Old Testament, this is at the very heart. Later on, close to his time of death, Jesus criticizes the religious leaders. And he says, you focus on little things and miss the most important. You focus on things like tithing your herb garden, making sure you take one-tenth of each leaf. But you miss the most important things. Then he actually goes on to say, here's what the most important things of the law are. Righteousness, faithfulness, and mercy. If you do not pursue the way of mercy, you have never really understood what God's law is trying to teach you. And I'd like us this morning to understand that by, by kind of just seeing how that plays out. We have three different verses or sections from the book of Deuteronomy that hopefully, as we will see, all are pointing us in the same direction, away from a limits mindset and more to a mercy mindset, asking how can we be a neighbor to someone else? We will see that, that what we have here is a call for a responsive mercy 
a proactive mercy and an attentive mercy. And then even as we understand what this mercy looks like, we'll think about how it is that we can live the life that we are called to and this, this strange way of Jesus that we are pursuing together as a church. So first, in the, uh, and if you don't have your bulletins open, I invite you to because we're just going to be kind of looking at each of these examples and I think it'll be helpful if you see. That very first part, those first few verses, I actually wonder if Jesus had this partly in mind when he was telling the story of the Good Samaritan because there's a, a lot in common. It's, it's imagining a moment, imagine you're this... this Israelite farmer, and you've been working all day in the hot sun, getting the weeds out of your crops, just taking care of them, and you come home, you know, like the sun is beginning to set, and you're walking along the path, and you see a dumb ox right in front of you on the road. And you know this ox is not supposed to be there. What's more, you know that if this ox isn't cared for, he could maybe walk into the, the stream, fall down, something could get hurt. And you know that this ox is the livelihood that someone else depends upon this ox to be able to keep farming. But you also know that this ox probably is there because someone did something dumb. Maybe they forgot to shut the gate. Maybe they just weren't paying attention. And, and the temptation in that moment when you see this dumb ox is just to pretend you don't see this dumb ox. To just kind of keep walking. Because you know at home is dinner. At home is hanging out with a family. At home is the end of a good day. But this ox, if you try to do anything, I mean, oxes are notoriously stubborn. There's no guarantee that it will be an easy thing to leave this ox to the owner if you even know what its owner or to even bring it home. And so you have a, a, a multiple-hour hassle before you if you see it. And so your temptation will be just to kind of say, I don't know what just happened there, but I'm not going to pay attention. And notice that's exactly what our passage speaks against. It says, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. And that word ignore literally has this idea of hiding your face. You shall not hide your face from this need. Rather, you need, when you see this need, when you see this ox, you need to bring it to the owner. And if you don't know what the owner is, you need to bring it home and you might care for it for months upon months upon months until finally the owner comes looking for it. And it's not just about ox. It says, you know, it could be other animals. It could be a donkey. It doesn't even have to be animals. Even if an expensive coat or just any coat, because a coat in that time would be expensive, is left on the road, you take care of it until the owner comes looking for it. And it's not even just about the issue of if something is lost, if you see someone who is trying to get their dumb ox out of a ditch, you help them. The point is, if as you are walking along the way, you see the need of someone else and you have the realistic opportunity to help, you have the responsibility to do so. And the reason, we are told, is, is very simple, because, because they have a claim on you. There is a phrase that is repeated six times in four verses. In fact, it's so common that the, the, all of the English translations are made at least once because it just seems too repetitive, and that is just the idea, your brother. Do you notice it? You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore him. You shall take it back to your brother. Then literally, and if your brother does not live near you, and you shall bring it home to your house and shall keep it home until your brother seeks. It just keeps going. And notice that this person who is described as your brother, you might not ever even have met this person. 
Because it says, if you don't know who it is, if you've not, you know, like if they are far away, they're still your brother. You still have the calling. The, the idea here is there is this person who has a claim on you in the same way that we have a claim on each other who are siblings. If, if your brother or sister does something, of course, you're going to help them. It's saying that is how you should see this person in need that is somehow along your pathway. If you can help when you see need along your path, if you can realistically do it, you are called to do so. I, I say realistically because this is not just this kind of completely um, unrealistic description. Notice what we're told here is not um, if you see an ox, you must go from town to town, from household to household until you finally find its master. That would be unrealistic. That would, that would keep you from being able to fulfill your responsibilities at home. And similarly, it's, it's not saying that, you know, every day when you're done farming, you should walk kind of a 10-mile radius and just make sure there are no oxen that are just missing. That's part of your responsibility. No, there's something actually very specific and particular about this. It's saying, as you are walking, as you happen to be doing your life, if need is put before you, then you need to respond. Which actually I think is helpful if we think about, as we are trying to start plugging this into our own lives, one of the challenges I think of living today as we think about this idea of mercy is that almost all of the need that we are exposed to, we can do very, very little about. Right? Because in the, in the news, we're hearing so much about whether it's earthquakes or war, poverty, famine, and we just feel helpless. And sure, we can oftentimes give to good organizations, but we can only give so much. And so sometimes we can have almost this compassion fatigue where we just kind of feel done and, 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 and like we have no more capacity to show mercy. But notice God is actually inviting us to look more specifically, to ask the question, what has God placed along our path? Where is their need of others in your sphere of influence? Maybe one of your friends, their parents with young kids, and they're going out of their minds, being kept at home the whole time, and if you could just give them a couple hours of babysitting, that would mean the world to them. Maybe there's someone down the street who's recently divorced and is having a hard time doing the upkeep of their house, and if you can just go like stop on by and loan them a tool or something like that, it's, it's the way of helping them in need. Or, or maybe it's some, an example of people who are literally along our path. If you think about it, every day if we drive into the city, those of us who do that regularly, we drive right by certain neighborhoods, or we take the train right by certain neighborhoods, and if we're not careful, we don't even look and we don't even see the need, but they are literally along our pathway. Where are there places that God has put along our path where there is need that, can, that we can realistically do something about? That, we are told, is what we were called to. That is the way of mercy, not trying to limit, but trying to be the neighbor that we're called to be. Well, secondly, we see in our passage there is also a call not just to responsive mercy, but to proactive mercy. Verse 8 is very simple. It's, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. And that day, where it was very hot during the day, people didn't want to hang out indoors in the evening while it was still warm. The coolest place, once the sun started going down, would be the roof. That's where oftentimes you might even have company. And, and you would think, if you think about it, that, that the roof, build, building a fence around the edge of the roof would be kind of a hassle. I mean, it's not an easy thing to figure out how to do that when it's up so high. 
And it would be an easier thing if you think about it just to say, hey guys, uh, could just everyone be careful when we're on the roof? Could you just make sure you don't get too close to the edge? But notice that's not what the instruction is. The instruction is that you must build a fence. And notice it's, it says, and if you don't, if someone gets hurt, it says, do this so that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall. Which is interesting. What it's saying is, we have a responsibility for the outcome of our actions, even if they are not intended. Like, sometimes I think we think that the primary thing that we should be focusing on is just our motives. Are we meaning to do things right? Are we not doing anything wrong? Like, are we not hitting people or stealing from them? Those are the obvious things. But this is not a limits mentality. The question it's saying is not about whether you're right, but about whether you're taking care of your neighbor. Yes, if someone falls from the side of your roof, that could be because they tripped. But still, that doesn't matter. What matters is you want to care for your neighbor. You need to be thinking of the outcome of your actions, even the ones that you did not intend, and seek to take care of your neighbor through them. Which, if we start thinking about what that means, about thinking through kind of the unintended consequences of our actions, it can get us into some pretty complicated territory. One of the questions I've been wrestling as I'm thinking about this kind of proactive vision of mercy is, is something as simple as buying inexpensive clothes. As probably some of you might know, the companies that are able to sell inexpensive clothes do it almost always by outsourcing the production of them to, co to countries where there's very little supervision about whether there's good working conditions. Usually you'll have, or often you'll have, 80-hour work weeks. Often you'll have children who are working in these mills. Often you'll have significant injuries. And there's kind of plausible deniability because the companies just don't really pay attention. So if, if someone can be held guilty, like responsible, before God because someone makes a mistake on the roof and you didn't build a fence... What does that say about my responsibility if I am, with my money, endorsing a way of producing clothing that brings injury to many? We see this same kind of principle of, of thinking about how our actions, even without bad intentions, how our actions can affect others in the New Testament. There is, when, when Paul is talking about how we eat, in, in the day in like Corinth where Paul is addressing if you wanted to ever eat meat, the only kind of meat you could buy at, like, the markets was meat that first had been offered to different idols. And Paul says, you know what, it's no big deal if you do that because you and I both know that idols are not real. And so if you eat meat, that's fine. Except here's the one thing. If you have someone who maybe recently is converted from paganism, who still feels like there's something significant about this sacrifice, and if your eating meat would lead them to do something that goes against their conscience, you must not do it. Even though you are technically in the right, you will be wrong because you're not thinking about how your actions will affect your neighbor. You know, we've actually, if we think about it in the last few years, had to think through that very kind of way of navigating because with COVID, right? With, with COVID, like many communities, our community had different understandings of the value of social distancing and masks. You know, there's disagreements, which is obviously pretty com common in our country, but what I'm so grateful for was there was a greater sense of agreement about a simple thing, and that is what matters is that we want to make sure that everyone possible can join together and worship. And if, if me wearing a mask, even if I don't think it's right, even if it's uncomfortable, if me wearing a mask can help someone else be able to participate, then it's worth it. 
It's not as important to be right. It's important to show kindness. How can we be a neighbor thinking about how our actions affect others? This is this, this idea of proactive mercy. So we see this call of responsive mercy. When we see need, we're called to respond to it when we can. This proactive, we, we think about how our actions can potentially affect others even if we're not intending it to. And then thirdly, we see a kind of a, what we could call a call to attentive mercy. This, this final group of people that we see described in 24 verses 17 through 22 is this grouping actually you see fairly frequently, not just in Deuteronomy, but throughout the Old Testament. The sojourner or the foreigner, the widow, and the fatherless. See, what these three people, these three groups had in common was none of them had a clear place in society. Oftentimes, they would be dislocated from a household, which meant they didn't have kind of a support structure of people watching out for them. It also meant that they didn't have a patriarch speaking on their behalf at the city gates. They had no political voice, no political power, no wealth. They were vulnerable and easily exploited and easily forgotten. And the instructions that we see here in some ways are united by a very simple idea. Pay attention to them. Pay attention as they are going through the processes of of sometimes bringing some sort of desire for justice. Don't allow them to be exploited. Make sure they receive their justice. Pay attention to them. The widow is already vulnerable enough. Don't allow her only cloak to be used as collateral. Pay attention to them. Make sure that when you're thinking about your farming practices, you leave space for these people who are often forgotten. Pay attention because it would be so easy to forget. Because it would be so easy when when your life is all about your household. You you have children, you have nieces and nephews, you have work in your farm. You could just be so focused on doing things and be doing things that are all important and loving people and and yet limit it to that and not realize that just a little ways away are people that everyone's forgetting that are being exploited. There's a call here to attentive mercy, to make sure That as you are looking in your sphere of influence where God has placed you, that you are not missing people that are easily forgotten, but you are paying attention to them in their time of need. Which again raises a question, like what what are examples of that for us? Where are there moments or places within our own walks of life where people are easily forgotten? I think we've mentioned a couple already, haven't we? When we think about those, those areas between the, the nice suburbs and the city that, that are intentionally bypassed and are easily forgotten. Or those people who make our clothes that because they are far away, we just don't think about. Closer to home, I think we could even think about even within our church. Are there people within our congregation who just kind of naturally fall through the cracks? Maybe they're quieter. Maybe they're not in the same age and stage that we are. Who are the people that are naturally or often forgotten about, and how can we pay attention? Because because that's the calling, not to kind of try to limit, but to move outward, to be a neighbor wherever God gives us the opportunity to. That is the way of mercy. So as reflecting on what Deuteronomy, what Jesus calls us to, this this kind of almost reverse way, rather than trying to protect and hold, but to move outward, if you're hearing this, as I'm hearing it at least, it's quite possible that in this moment you're feeling a little overwhelmed, at least I am. 
And the question I think that naturally occurs to us is how? How can we, if this is the way of Jesus, if this is the way of the kingdom, this way of, of moving outwards in mercy, how can we do this? I actually think that when we get to these final verses that we've talked about, about the widow, the sojourner, and the orphan, we actually have a couple of, of hints or trajectories that help us to know what it looks like or how we can go ahead and pursue this. One of them actually is found in the idea of gleaning. So I've already kind of alluded to this, but there is this principle that happens in the final few verses when it's talking about the widow, the sojourner, and the orphan, where, where landowners are instructed that when you get to the time of year where it's harvest time and your workers go through the fields, I mean, this is the time where you're gathering profit. When you go through the fields and you come to the other end, inevitably there will be stuff that has been left over, grapes that were missed, olives that are still on the tree, sheaves of grain that are left on the ground that kind of fell out of people's arms as they were gathering. And an efficient organization would say, we need to go back and do a second run-through. Because if you think about it, for months, the whole thing has been leading up to this moment. So much investment has come into getting these crops, and you want to make sure you get every last bit if you're going to be efficient. But God says, no, you need to actually choose the way of inefficiency. You need to leave those things there so that other people can have the dignity of being able to gather that and work and experience God's bounty. Which is an interesting principle, the idea of actually a willful inefficiency when it comes to a certain kind of productivity for the sake of mercy. Now, I want us to consider what that might be saying to us. It, obviously, there are ways that we could probably think about this in economic and financial ways. But I'd actually like us to consider where I think it's probably even more pertinent to us, and that is in the way that we use time. I think if you are like me and you start imagining some of these scenarios that we're talking about and what it looks like if we were trying to move ourselves more in the pathway of mercy, one of the first things you go is like, I'm not sure how to do it because I'm not sure I have enough time. And here's what I suggest might be the case. I wonder how many of us have fine-tuned our schedule so that we are efficiently using it as productively as possible and there is nothing left over. For activities, for things to do, for our kids and for ourselves, whether we're talking about hyper-scheduling activities in the afternoon, whether we're talking about work, whether we're talking about multiple times away during weekends, the reality is it might well be that we cannot do this because we have made it impossible because we haven't left anything. There is nothing left to glean because we've captured it all for something else. I would suggest that for at least some of us, the first way that we should apply this call to mercy involves looking at our schedule and saying, what is it that I can do less of? This might be something that's actually a long process because there's only so much control we have over things like work, right? But where are there ways that we can cut stuff out so that we can leave the olives, the grain, the other parts left over so that we find ourselves with space to be able to make the parapet along the roof? That is, to think about how our actions affect others. Space so that when we see need, we can pay attention to it rather than being too busy to recognize it. Space so that if we see someone along the road, they do not just seem like a super inconvenient interruption, but in potentially even as an opportunity to be a neighbor to them. What might you or I do to kind of 
cut back so that we have more space to live the life of mercy to which Jesus calls us. But that is only, I think, one of the obstacles that, that makes these words challenging for us. The other, I think, goes deeper and is harder. There's a reason, right, that the, this religious leader was asking a question of trying to seek limits. And if we're honest, that reason we understand all too well. I mean, there is a part of us that we've, we've kind of like grown and nourished and has been nourished by the world around us that says that one of our primary responsibilities is to protect ourselves, to kind of fight for what we most need, to pursue and to earn the things that will make us satisfied, to, to avoid anything that's toxic, to be involved in self-care, all of these things, some of which have truth to them, but collectively are used by Satan to give us a certain posture where we see mercy is just an optional extra when we have the time and are in the mood. Now, Jesus, when he says, no, this is the way, this is what the law calls us to, our natural first question is, okay, so where can be the limit? And what that exposes is just as we saw with the religious leader, completely wrong mentality, where our mind is not thinking about how we can be a neighbor, but what can we do so we don't have to do anymore? And I think we also, in these verses, see... The, the seed of a solution to that. Do you notice when, when there's this instruction in verse 17 about caring for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the uh, widow? It says, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? Do you remember before I'm asking you to show mercy to anyone else, here's what you need to remember. I showed mercy to you. I have loved you even when you were the forgotten. The principle I think we're supposed to understand here is for us to be those who show mercy first, we have to recognize that we have experienced mercy. When the, when the ruler came to Jesus... The ruler was treating Jesus the wrong way. He was just seeing Jesus as like this, this debate partner to kind of instruct him on certain kind of rules. And, and Jesus is willing to give instruction, but Jesus is so much more. If the religious ruler could, have, ruler could have just realized he's not just an instructor, Jesus is the way. Because it's not just a matter of Jesus telling us about mercy. The, the way that he leads us into the way of mercy is first and foremost by showing us mercy. I want you to imagine just for a moment the, the, the perfect situation. Whatever that is, the, the thing that you feel like you would feel most full, maybe it's with you and your closest loved ones, maybe it's on a beach or around a meal, the kind of moments that you just go, wow, I wish these could last forever. Whatever that is, if you can have that idea in your mind, we should understand that Jesus, the Son of God, for all eternity, was experiencing something far, far greater than that. In perfect communion with the Father, perfect delight, perfect love, perfect joy, He was full. And meanwhile, we were rejecting, turning away from God, we were making ourselves enemy, and He could have had every right to just not look. To just say, that's their problem 
I am filled with joy and I will maintain that. But, but scripture tells us that is not what he did. He looked. In fact, he came down and saw it as a man face to face with us. He saw and he grieved over our grief. He entered into our suffering. So much so that he entered into our guilt and shame and death. He gave everything to help you and to me and to lift us up and bring us into life. He has shown mercy in the fullest way possible. And as we are asking how, how do we do it, it begins and it ends with this. If we're realistic, you and I both know that perhaps even today or sometime this week, there will be a moment where we recognize there is someone who could really use our help but there is something in us that really doesn't want to. And sometimes it might just be a matter of like sheer willpower and pushing through where we can do it, but that, let me tell you, that's not going to be enough. The only way that I think we can start moving the direction that we need to is in those moments remember something simple. I have been loved by Jesus. Jesus saw me. Jesus has shown the greatest depth of mercy to me. It is as we receive that, as, as we are able to say, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, it is in that moment that our heart experiencing something different. And rather than pulling and protecting, it begins to move out in the reality that we are those who have experienced mercy. And therefore, we begin to show mercy. 